0: Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit. Preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. As we move to Revelation chapter 7, uh, there's two visions that John the Beloved has here. Uh, Both of them are tethered to the last question in verse 17. Look in verse 17. For the great day of his wrath has come, who shall be able to stand? Here you've got these kings and mighty men and bondmen and free men, and they're looking, the heavens have rolled asunder, have rolled apart, you know, and you've got the great quake that is that has occurred. You've got the moon becoming as blood and the sun becoming black like sackcloth, and they run into the mountains and the rocks in verse 16 to be hid, in their estimation correctly, I might add, from the wrath of the Lamb and say, Who shall be able to stand? So it wasn't the mighty men that could stand. It wasn't the rich men, the kings. It wasn't the poor men. It wasn't the freemen. It wasn't the bondmen. And then in Revelation chapter 7, John has two visions. The first of these, as we spoke last week, is the vision of these 144,000 sealed saints or servants. They're called servants several times, particularly in verse 3. And they're sealed. And these, as we learned last week, are unique. Uh, Demographically, they're Jewish. 12,000 from each tribe that is present, with the exception of Dan, and in that place, Levi is substituted. And they preach. And one thing that we noted about them later, I think it's in chapter 14, uh, particularly actually in chapter 8, I think it is as well, they're exempt from the judgment. They seem to be present Um, before there's any injury to the earth the scripture mentions that in the first two verses that would be before the beginning of the seals are opened and they're there at the very end and none of them die in these seven years with the magnified tribulation that exists with the terrible difficulties that exist with persecution they're still there they're sealed wild beasts do not ravage upon them Uh, famine does not execute them Pestilence does not harm them. They, they are uh, super preachers here in this regard. That was the first group to answer the question, who shall stand before the Lamb? And this morning with our time, we'll deal with this second group. Before we go any further, let me just tell you what, this would be our last formal lesson that we're going to have on Revelation chapter 7. Uh, and and uh, chapter 8 starts off with the seventh seal, which opens that telescopic view into the other judgments. And since we're coming up on the end of the year, December 31st, this is my game plan, all right? December the 31st, is next Sunday, we've got our verse quiz. And verse quiz is always kind of eaten to the classroom a little bit. So then what I'm going to do, <clears throat> I'll give you a verse quiz, and then after we've collected our verse quiz, we'll dismiss the classes. And then instead of distributing a handout, we're going to distribute another, we'll call it an eschatological quiz, a quiz over the end times. I'll give you the answers at the end of it, you know. And then if we have any time remaining or maybe through the cursory of this quiz, we'll, we'll do a Q&A or something like that with that. Perhaps you've got questions. Maybe I didn't state something so well. But uh, in any case, that'll be what our plan is for next week. Then the week following, which would be January the 7th, it'll be a focus on the Bible. It's kind of our Bible Sunday, and then following that, we'll move into a different study for five or six weeks, and perhaps at the conclusion of that, circle back. So we're going to take a break here of several weeks from eschatology and move to some other things that are uh, practical and helpful as well. Well, to this second group, this second group, to answer the question, who shall be able to stand, note, if you will, verse number 9, chapter 7, and verse number 9 of Revelation. After this, John says... I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations, and kindreds, and people, and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hand. and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. This is that second vision, the second group that is able to stand before the Almighty God. The first of these were the 144,000 sealed saints. The second is this, we'll call it, innumerable multitude. To your notes, if you will, uh, they read, After concluding the vision of 144,000 sealed servants, John beholds a second scene, a second scene, which includes a great multitude. So much so that the inference is given which no man could number. No man could number. Uh, That's an interesting phrase there, to think of all that man can number today. Uh, To think of uh, men, humanity, by way of science and math and technological innovation, what they can tabulate and keep track of. Have you ever rode around and looked at all the license plates that exist? There are tons of them. And here in the Commonwealth, there's no two license plates alike. They're different, different numbers. You get these vanity plates. Uh, You can get specialized plates, you know, if you're a veteran or if you're endorsing various other things or certain alumni from certain colleges. And there are 12 million people or so in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I don't know how many millions of drivers there are. And no two are alike. And in a moment, a police officer can pull someone over. In a moment, having taken their license plate and registration, he can run it through his database and extrapolate all that information that quickly. But note here, when John deals with this great multitude, it's beyond the human capability to number them. That's a big group of people that exist. Now, there are some that would conclude. Well, I should say there are several reasons to conclude that this group, this innumerable group, is different than the first group that exists in chapter 7 that we entitled the 144,000 saints. Let me give you four or five reasons here. There's a difference between these 144,000 that are mentioned in the first eight verses and this great multitude that are mentioned in the last eight or nine verses. Number one, under the 144,000, it is a specific number. Now, I won't bore you, nor can I understand how long it will take, <clears throat> but do can we all count to 1,000? We know what a valuation of 1,000 is. Because we know what 1,000 is, we can understand what 144,000 exists. Now, there are some numbers in scriptures which are kind of a turn of a phrase. For instance, over in chapter 5, I believe it's in chapter 5, Listen, he's, listen to this in verse 11. He says, And I beheld and heard around the voice of many angels, many angels, round about the throne and beast and elders, and the number of them, of the, all these angelic beings he speaks of, he said the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000s 10, and thousands of thousands. That is meant to be an indefinite number. A Greek word for that gives you insight in that. It's myriad, which means... It's just a number as broad and out of context so that you know there's a lot of them present. So some numbers in the book of Revelation, like this one in chapter 5, are not meant to be. They're a great multitude. But there's a lot of numbers with specificity given in the book of Revelation. For instance, four beasts, 24 elders, seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, the mark of the beast, which is, are all those real numbers? Yes, we quantify them. So one of the differences between these two that would see that two different groups is the 144,000 is a specific number, and this great multitude is an innumerable host. A second thing is this, these 144,000 sealed servants, they are distinctly Jewish. None of them come from the tribe of, uh, of England. None of them come from the tribe of Scotland. None of them come from the tribe of, of China. They all come from 12 tribes that we historically and biblically understand to be Jewish, which brings a great question in and of itself. What happened to the lost tribes? They may be lost to some in history, but they are not lost to God himself. But when you come to this great multitude, notice in verse number 9, they're not just from Jewish nation. The scripture says this great multitude They are from what? All nations. Keep that in mind. When we visit Isaiah, we'll look at something quite interesting there. They're from all nations. So that is all nations that exist at the time of the end times of the tribulation. So that means the kingdoms, the ten kingdoms over which the Antichrist sits, there's going to be some from those kingdoms that won't follow him. If we want to look at Gog and Magog, there's going to be some from that region of the north. There'll be some that will have their allegiance to the Almighty God. You look at the kings of the south and the kings of the east, they come from all nations. That's a veritable excitement in our heart, isn't it? You know, we sometimes refer to people in abbreviated historical frames. We, We talk about the Axis power and the Allied powers, and we get the idea that if you were on the wrong side, if your country was on the wrong side of a conflict then everybody in that country is evil. I have a book in my library. I know I've loaned it out over the years. I've, I, I've bought up several co- copies of it, but the guy retired, passed away. His name is, who uh, uh, was a full colonel, Colonel Logan Wesson. And uh, he went into World War II. When he was in World War II, he was part of a marauder group in the Burma, India, China theater. And he was one that would do harassment and interdiction. And he's walking across one day and these guys, and he he has this whole account that he feeds in. And the guy, I think, behind him got shot and killed. And they captured the Japanese sniper. And um, Mr. Wesson, in all this account, begins to talk about, uh, the narrative of it was odd that he was in the position that usually that was the one that got shot, his position. He was not supposed to be there, but through a series of events, he wound up there. And historically in his years, that third guy in was the one that got shot. And t- instead, this time, it was a fourth guy. And they captured this Japanese fellow, and they began to interrogate him. And Wesson asked him why. And he said, because I saw the cross of the Bible in your belt, and I could not kill another Christian. And it amazed them to think that here's a Japanese sniper that as a little boy came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We don't think about stuff like that. We think in very binary terms so often. There's the good guys, and in the good guys, all the good guys are good, right? And then you got the bad guys, and all the bad guys are bad. So when we think about the end times, you've got the Antichrist, and so everybody in the kingdom of the Antichrist, everybody's bad, right? Not not according to this passage. Anything about the kingdom of the south or the east or of and you think, well, all of them are evil. No, in these nations exist individuals that will be just as saved as you and I are. They're not Jewish distinctly. They're from all nations. I must hurry. Number three, the 144,000, they're sealed in their foreheads. They're sealed in their foreheads. Yet, when you come to look at this great multitude, there's no ceiling in their foreheads, but rather just the reference that they're clothed with white robes, white robes. Next, you find that these 144,000, as we belabored last week, they're preserved during the tribulation. This great multitude, they're standing clothed in white robes before the lamb and before his throne. The emphasis seems to be uh, they're martyred. They're martyred. To be martyred is to be executed. It is to be killed. That is not what happens with 144,000. I would note both of these have a testimony. One, the 144,000, is a testimony of God's ability to preserve. The other one is the testimony of individuals willing by faith to die for the faith. Now, some comment that this host is not a reference to the 144,000, but rather is a reference to those of the New Testament era. By that, I mean you and I. And yet, there are many problems with this account as well. Um, In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, we're introduced to 24 elders. And you can circle back to the uh, sermon page, you know, and you can click on the one that says 24 elders. And there's a whole lesson about these 24 elders being... Um, uh, being standing in the stead, if you will, for the New Testament believer. But notice the New Testament saints, as you're blank there, and the great multitude. When you come to chapter 4 and 5, and you meet the New Testament saints represented by the 24 elders, in chapter 4 and verse 4, they're sitting around the throne. They have 24 seats, and there are 24 of them, and they are seated. But here in chapter 7... If the Bible means anything, it does not say about them seating, but rather they are standing before the throne. They are standing before the throne. You'll note in verse number 9, they stood before the throne. The New Testament Saint in chapter 4 and verse 4 and 10, they're crowned. They're seated on thrones, and there's a crown on their forehead. There's no mention of crowns at all for this group of individuals in the end of chapter 7. Rather, they're said that they have palms in their hands which, interesting, I couldn't find too much of where you find the New Testament um, chapter 4 representative with any palms in their hands. In reference to these New Testament saints, a theme word in chapter 2 and 3 is that they overcame. That word used several times in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the various churches, to him that overcomes, to him that overcomes, to whom that overcomes. So going forward, metao after this, there's no mention of the New Testament saint until you get to chapter number 19. Why? Because they've overcome. But when you come to this phrase here in chapter 7, the, uh, later in the passages here, it talks about the reference of this group. Uh, John asked one of the elders that were nearby and said, who are these? And he said, these are the ones that came out of the tribulation. So different parallel here. One overcame, didn't go through the tribulation. The other one was martyred and therefore came out of the tribulation. In chapter 5 and verse 10, the New Testament saint, they're proclaimed, and this is biblically true, it's why they're proclaiming it, that they are kings and priests. Yet when you find this group, this group is said that they will serve him day and night in his temple. Now you've got two groups, one that is a king and priest, that's you and I, and this group who will serve God in his temple day and night. In chapter 4 and verse (coughs) 4, and also chapter number 19 and verse 16, we have something referenced interesting here. And at first glance, it might, your eyes just move right over it. You don't even think about it. But in these New Testament, the 24 elders, the scripture says that they're clothed in white raiment. They're clothed in white raiment. As we read just a moment ago, this great multitude is clothed in a white robe. Now, immediately, what's your mind do? Same thing, same thing, but it's not. It's two different words and has two different meanings, and that's why I have chapter 19 and verse 16 present. Chapter 19 and verse 16, uh, you don't have to turn here. This is why we give study guides. You can look at these later, but chapter 19, John declares, and he saw him he seated on a white horse he descends with ten thousands of his saints, and he says specifically about him that is clothed on that white horse, he said he has a vesture. That's the same idea as raiment. The idea of this raiment that is being denoted is this is not just one article of clothing. It is an endowment of clothing. It is what a king and a priest would wear. When you come to a white robe, the Greek word there is stella, and it is one article that is white. Do you see the distinction? They're not clothed. It's the same color. Later, they're all clothed in white linen, but at this particular time, one is in a vesture of royal refinement, and the other one's in a vesture singular that is white and attired. Two different groups. It would seem that this great multitude is distinct from previous mentioned multitudes, particularly in chapter 7 and chapter 5. It is neither the 144,000 servants, nor is it the New Testament era saints. The time will not allow. We would also conclude that this is not an extensive group of angelic beings. In chapter 7 and verse 11, he talks about the angels that stood around the throne. If this great host of people are individuals, if they were angels, why would other angels be standing around? Not to mention, we do know that there is a 10,000 times ten thousands times thousands, myriad groups of angels already referenced in chapter 5 and verse 11. Um, therefore, this seems to be a specially unique group. It's our belief that this group is the redeemed host of those that were saved, and I know the tense is different there from our perspective, are, from John's perspective, was. Was saved during the tribulational period they are linked with the sealed servants. It is likely that they, the great multitude, heard the gospel of the Lamb preached by them, the 144,000 sealed saints. Chapter seven is not the first time, nor the last time, that this great multitude, in part or whole, will be referenced. In chapter six and verse nine, there's the fifth seal, and when he, it's very interesting, chapter 5, verse 9, it says he saw the saints under the altar, and the reference that were there, they're under the altar, the souls of them that were slain. And here you see a reference, these are bodies that are present and they're clothed. But I liken that the two groups are likely the same, or at least that the portion in chapter 6 and verse 9 is part of this great multitude that now stand in heaven. So they're mentioned there in chapter 6 and verse 9. Uh, They're also mentioned in chapter 14 and verse 12, in chapter 15, verses 2 through 4, and they're mentioned again in their finality in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, where John said, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the sake of the gospel. He's not talking about the New Testament era saint. He's not talking about uh, the Old Testament prophets. He's talking about this group. Remember the prophecy given there in that fifth seal? Look in chapter 6 quick. They're crying out to the Lord that God would bring vengeance upon those that have opposed him and ultimately killed them. That's the cry of verse 10, avenge our blood on them that dwell on earth. Here's an interesting thing in verse 11, and what was given unto them? White robes, very in keeping with chapter 7. Um, But notice what the command was given. And it was said unto them that they should rest for a little season until their fellow servants Also, and their brethren, which should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. So when you meet them in the first half of the tribulation, they're delivered up, uh, many of them. In fact, perhaps the overwhelming majority of them are going to be slaughtered for the faith in Christ Jesus that they now have during this tribulational period. They're going to come from the four corners of the earth, all nations. And what's interesting, when you first meet them in chapter 6, the phrase is, the prophecy, there's going to be more that will be greeting you soon. That's this, I believe, great multitude. These aforementioned references also denote, we've said this already, but just in keeping with the notes, that many of them will be executed for the exact reason of following the Lamb. This section here in chapter 7 seems to be those that have actually been martyred. Out, uh, they came out of the great tribulation. Now, there's one reason I say that, what we do know is that at the end of the tribulation, there's about a 75-day gap from the last day of the tribulation before the millennial kingdom begins. When the millennial kingdom begins, Daniel references that in Daniel chapter 12, but when the millennial kingdom begins, you do have something that you're going to need. And that 75 days, I believe Matthew chapter 25 will come to fast. That's referred to as the judgment of the nations. Sheep and goat. I'm going to make a reference here about this in a moment. And those two groups are divided. The goat nations, and keep in mind, I said this, and this was intentional. We tend to look at things exhaustively binary. There's the good guys and the bad guys. There's good nations and bad nations. But keep in mind, nations are made up of what? People. And people have individual choices. And there's going to be people out of bad nations. Listen, right now, there are, right now, I am firmly a a believer that there are, there are believers, saints of God in nations that politically oppose our country. Do you believe that? So what I'm saying is, if our politicians would be listened to, and we bomb India, not India, Iran, that judgment is going to fall out upon individuals we're going to spend eternity with. Now, I'm not saying that, therefore, there should never ever be war. What I'm saying is the whole binary thought that all the good guys live in the U.S. and no bad guys live in the U.S. is not theologically viable. I've heard several missionaries, some of which you know, have said as their estimation there's more believers in China than in the U.S. There there is more than three times the population as well. So here, in this 75 day gap, you've got a judgment of nations. And you've got these nations, all the nations of the world, the goats and the sheep. What's interesting, the goats are given to eternal damnation and those sheep are set upon the right hand of God into eternal life. It is these living individuals that put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ They've came to a saving knowledge and they've escaped death during the tribulation. This group of these sheep nations will go forward and they'll be married and given into marriages and that will produce the population of the millennial kingdom. So what I'm submitting to you is in chapter 7, these are the group of believers that died for the faith. There is another group of individuals that will come to the saving knowledge of faith. And they'll make it to the end. They will live. And they'll be married and given into marriage. And they'll have children. And those children will, will grow and be married. And yes, it will happen in that accord. That's the way it will happen in the millennial kingdom. Why? Because he that ruleth will rule with a rod of iron. And it will work like that. And you'll have, a, you want to talk about a myriad worldwide population. By the way, all upon this terra firma that we stand all of the judgments upon the earth, the devastation, the mega quake, the cosmic disturbances, she's going to have to endure another thousand years of the millennial kingdom. That's God preserving his creation. By the way, God preserves everything that he makes. If he's made you a saint of God, he'll preserve you. If you've made you a saint of God, good luck. Anyway, note this paragraph here. I gave that a little bit of elaboration, maybe to put some context here. This section seems to be those that have actually been martyred, that is, came out of the tribulation. With the idea of the tribulation still ongoing, they came out, and they were martyred for the faith. Those of this group that have not been martyred seem to be represented by the sheep nations, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Verse 46 speaks that they will inherit the kingdom prepared for them, That's verse 34, rather. Verse 46, and will enter into life eternal. The goat nations will be sent to everlasting punishment, Matthew 25, 46. So you have two groups here. Then this will accord. So that way, when you're entering into the millennial kingdom, everyone entering the millennial kingdom is born again. I can put it. You finally have a theocracy on earth where everybody born to Adam's race is Enters the millennial kingdom, S A V E D. That's what happens. Now, notice this next paragraph because I think it's pointed. I think it sets apart the distinction between the New Testament saint, what we so often experience, and the tribulational saint. There'll be one type of saint in the tribulation that will not exist, that so often exists in our era. Unlike many of the false professors that existed in some of the churches of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and they did. Some of them followed the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It's like a seeker-sensitive movement. That's what the doctrine of Nicolaitans were. Some of them followed after Jezebel. Some of them left their first love. That was Ephesians, the Ephesian church in uh, Revelation chapter 2. They're false possessors. They existed. These martyred believers of Revelation chapter 7 have done more than just express a saving faith. See, by their faith, the scripture mentions that they had washed their outward appearance in the eyes of the satanic world of that age. He speaks of this in these verses. It talks about, uh, uh, they, in verse number 14, they have washed their robes. Now, some would look at that and say, look, they did something to be saved. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I rather believe that the choice is so distinct. At the moment these individuals of those tribulational era are confronted with the gospel, it's a, there's no middle ground. And equally, not only is there no middle ground, because there's still not a middle ground today, there's no half-hearted commitment. There's not one of us in here that doesn't know someone that's came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that just can never make it to church. Right? Or just don't seem to be able to get started on their Christian walk whatsoever. Or got started on their Christian walk and then all of a sudden fell away from God. Right? We all know somebody that follows that suit. That will not exist in the tribulational period. You see, right now you have the process of sanctification. And we would say this of a new believer. They need to what? Grow in the Lord. They need to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. And that's the process by which they become conformed to his image and used of his purpose. And every one of us that are here this morning, we know that that process of sanctification is challenging in our life. And it's by God's grace that we look back and say, oh, look at the mighty work that God has done in me. That won't be the theme of these Revelation Saints. There'll be no church attendance. Not allowed to do that. You'll commit, you'll commit everything, or you won't commit. It's that clear. Because to commit will very likely mean your very death. And when your life is on the line, you get very serious about things. And juxtaposition here, you've got the lamb, and you've got the son of perdition, and the beast, and the evil that exists, and you'll have a multitude. I believe it's Ezekiel, or maybe it's Joel chapter 2, actually. He says there'll be multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. You won't come to the end of the tribulation and say, well, I'm unsure who and what really I believe. This will not be that way at all. These that come to Christ, they'll know that if they're going to follow Christ in faith, it's going to mean their extermination. That's very blunt. Can you imagine going out soul winning with that kind of message? I mean, that's very prophetic in its essence. And to know that the person you're talking to will either accept Christ and likely lose their life, or they'll deny Christ and very likely try to see that your life is taken. That's what the Lord was talking about when I come to bring enmity. Father against son. Mother against daughter. Their faith causes a distinct and immediate choice to be made. None of these believers, here's a good phrase, are lukewarm in their obedience. It would seem that those that had tinkered with the faith prior to the rapture will not be able to come to that believing faith. There's not a lot on that statement in Scripture. But there is is Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, equates that God will send a strong delusion. For those that have heard the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ prior to the rapture of the saints, it's my estimation from the interpretation of Second Thessalonians, they're going to buy lot, stock, and barrel into the Antichrist. If not, you've got a problem. You've got to come up with who's going to believe the delusion. You don't believe a delusion if you don't already know the truth. The truth being revealed is a great and weighty responsibility. As such as it will be in those times. It seems that John may see into the very throne of God, heaven. Yet it most practically seems that this is a reference to the time of the millennial kingdom. If you write in your notes, I don't mind saying this. I'm halted between two decisions here. In one sense... It seems as he's seeing into heaven. Yet in another sense, it seems that he's seeing the responsibility of the millennial kingdom. For there's no throne in heaven quite, or rather no temple yet in heaven quite like there will be on earth. But notice the practicality of this. These individuals, they have white robes. They stood before a throne. That sound is much like in the presence of heaven. Yet in verse 10, they have palms in their hands. This is similar to the Feast of the Tabernacles in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. And palms always are surrounded by times of joy and jubilation. You'll remember, we refer to it sometimes as Palm Sunday. What were they doing? Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna is jubilation and joy. They got palms in their hands. They're not still in the tribulation. I like it that they're likely in a resurrected state. They're holding them. They're praising God like the heavenly host they are. Speaking of praises, that's the third one here. They're saying of praises. It's interesting in their praise that they give blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. If you cross-reference that with chapter five, there's a sevenfold adoration. By the way, if you go online, and you want to look, we we covered all of this in chapter number five. There's only one distinction between the two. The order is different, but largely it's the same. And that is that riches are not present here, but thanksgiving is. It's the only distinction here, riches versus thanksgiving. Another thing that you'll note about the practicality of these individuals, what they'll do in eternity, it says that they'll serve day and night in his temple. Some reference this, that it cannot be heaven because in heaven there's no day and night, it's eternity. Yet at the same time, an excellent point could be made by Revelation chapter 20. Uh, The scripture speaks of a day and night and a reference of eternity with Satan being bound. Yet it should be noted that in the New Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 22, there is no temple. But in the millennial kingdom, not only is there a temple in the millennium, Isaiah 66, 19 through 21, there is also a tabernacle, Isaiah chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. So while they may not be present in heaven, they are on earth. That's why I somewhat think that this might be a twofold view one in heaven, and then what they're going to do in the millennial kingdom with their resurrected body. Notice the fifth one, verse number 16, references to the practicality of this they'll hunger no more. They'll thirst no more. I use the word reary for time, reference space, but the scripture says, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. Uh, They're not going to experience the abruptness of life anymore. There's going to be rest with them. Uh, From the moment of their salvation, uh, they have run from persecution and they've experienced the famine and the pestilence that has fallen through very seal judgments. And now... It's never going to be this way again. It should be noted that in the New Jerusalem, there is no sun nor night. Revelation chapter 21, verse 25. Verse number 7 makes a promise that's given later as well in chapter 20 that he would wipe all the tears from their eyes. Now, you'll notice one thing that I really haven't touched on is all the Old Testament quotes. Because this verbiage correlates to Isaiah, where Isaiah is talking about the millennial kingdom. In fact, the phrase, wipe all tears from their eyes, if you go back to Isaiah in chapter 25 and 65, he uses those words. No hunger or thirst. If you go to Isaiah 49, in fact, turn to Isaiah 49 for a moment, because I want to get to this last verse here. But in Isaiah 49, listen to verse 8 and 10. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee. In the day of salvation I have helped thee. I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth that thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth to them that are in darkness. Sow yourself. They shall feed in ways and their pastures shall be in high places. Listen to verse 10, Isaiah forty nine ten. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them. Even by the springs of water shall he guide them. By the way, that's the same reference in Revelation. The lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into the living fountains of water, and God shall wipe all tears from their eyes. That's my submission that though John might see them in heaven, the practicality is what they're going to do during the millennial kingdom, this great multitude. I'll notice this last paragraph and hold your place there to Isaiah chapter 49. Regardless of where this multitude is when John sees them, they are an innumerable host that come from every direction of the earth. This was prophesied by Isaiah as well. Notice verse number 12, that same text, chapter 49. behold, these shall come from afar. And lo, those from the north and from the west, these from the land of Sinema. It's interesting, if you'll look that up, most commentator believes that's the far, far east. It's interesting, isn't it? These 144,000 are going to preach the glorious gospel of the Lamb of God. There's so much about that that I don't understand. But those who are earnestly seeking, God will not fail them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And out of all the diabolical deeds and the wrath of God being poured out upon this world, there will come a redeemed innumerable host. And though many of them would be martyred, even those that will be martyred, God will see to it that they have a place in his millennial kingdom. Not to mention an eternal home. So will people be saved in the tribulational period? I think the answer is an emphatic yes. How are they saved? Same way I am, same way Abraham is, by faith in the finished work of Christ. I'm thinking of that old gospel song, Are You Ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Have you received the gospel? Father, Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.sbbcpa.org. Until next time.